Okay, welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. I am your host, Chuma Obineme, PGY6 fellow at Emory University in the Division of Digestive Diseases. Uh, I am running solo today. Um, I've been abandoned by my co-host, uh, Dr. Jason Brown. If you've seen him, if you see him, uh, you know, working hard, scoping at a Grady Memorial Hospital as the GI Fellowship Site Director, tell him he's needed here. But without further ado, uh, if you're joining us for the first time or repeat listener, every month we review recent guidelines and reviews within the field of gastroenterology and hepatology and discuss the more salient points uh, via the use of clinical cases. Uh, today, we have a great episode. We have a real live celebrity, okay? She is fantastic. She has been dubbed expert, master, queen. Uh, I'm really excited for the episode. But a couple things before we get started, okay? If you have not left a review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, please, please stop stop the podcast right now. Like, subscribe, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a review, good or bad, we just want to hear from you. Uh, and if you haven't already, read the guidelines, okay? This one actually came with a dissemination tool, so we'll get to that in the actual show. And... Yeah, you can also check out the visual summary created by the Emeroid Digest. Actually, it was written by yours truly. Uh, and with that, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. Today we have an excellent guest with us, Dr. Nina Abraham, and I'm going to give her a quick introduction. Uh, so Dr. Nina Abraham is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona and a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology within the Department of Medicine and Healthcare Policy Research in the Department of Quantitative Health Sciences. Uh, she is a federally funded principal investigator at the intersection of cardiology and gastrointestinal disorders, uh, focusing her research agenda on health services and outcomes research. Uh, Dr. Abraham uh, is the first female director of the ACG Institute for Clinical Research and Education. Uh, she is really important for this episode, uh, the, really the primary author of the joint guidelines released by both the American College of Gastroenterology and the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology, entitled Clinical Practice Guideline Management of Anticoagulants and Antiplatelets During Acute Gastrointestinal Bleeding and the Periendoscopic Period. Uh, she has also been dubbed the queen of cardiogastroenterology by some of her followers on Twitter. Dr. Abraham, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me today. So, um, you know, I, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Uh, I <laughs> bumped into you at ACG, fortunately, and uh, you said yes. So now I kind of want, I guess... Maybe uh, to introduce our listeners to how how you came up in the field of gastroenterology, like how did you how did you choose it, and you know how did you make your way to to Arizona? Well, it was a very circuitous route. I'm I'm Canadian, and I did all my training, including my gastroenterology 
an advanced therapeutics fellowship, an epidemiology degree, all in Canada. And I originally started on faculty at a university in Canada, but after a few years there, I was recruited to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And that's actually where I first came up with the idea of cardiogastroenterology. At the time, I had a federal grant in GI bleeding. And uh, one of the things I noticed was that the biggest group of GI bleeders were elderly patients with cardiac problems who were on aspirin, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, antiplatelets, and anticoagulants. So even though that grant was technically an NSAID bleeding grant, I started focusing on those cardiac patients because I realized GI just didn't know a lot about it. And I was asking the question, was there anything we could do in gastroenterology to help lessen the risk of GI bleeding in these patients? Aware, of course, that baby boomers were getting older, and I knew that a lot of them would have cardiac disease. So I thought back in 2000, if I pivoted my research agenda from NSAID bleeding to bleeding related to antiplatelets and anticoagulants, that I would probably have a lot of room to investigate and answer important clinical questions. So that's where it all started. And then, honestly, to tell you the truth, I just made the word up, <laughs> cardio yeah. <laughs> and. I would reference it in all the articles I wrote, whether it was original research or uh, editorials or thought pieces or invited, invited pieces by journals. And eventually it just kind of carried on. And uh, when, when Brennan Spiegel put it, put it in his board review book, I knew I had made it. It was a thing. I then moved to Arizona in, in 2013, and I've been at Mayo Clinic in Arizona since then. And then your clinical practice, I mean, because I, I saw that you're, I mean, you don't just do cardiogastroenterology. You're also, you, you did an advanced year as well. Are you still yeah, doing yeah. <laughs> you know, ERCPE US or... or? I, I started out doing ERCP 12 hours a day, five, six days a week. But I found out quickly that based on the institution I was at originally, where I was one of three ERCPs, ERCP is for a large population that I wasn't able to do my research. So uh, when I moved to Houston, one of the things that was attractive to me was the fact that David Graham, who was the chief of the division at the time, was hiring me for my research potential, not for my therapeutic and skills. So over the 10 years I spent in Houston, I pretty much hung up my lead, stopped doing ERCB, and focused on my research. That's awesome. Um, did you, uh, I guess, you know, when you were making all these different, I don't know, changes, I guess, in your career direction, were there any particular mentors that you had or, 
you know, advice that you got along the way that, that really helped guide you? Oh, absolutely. My, my first mentor was actually the dean of my medical school. And he gave me a summer job for two years because I had a background as a history major. And so for two years, I did oral history and the history of medicine type research with him for our faculty because our medical school at the time was uh, coming up on a big anniversary and they wanted to capture oral histories of some of the original faculty. But through that summer job work with him, uh, I had a lot of really fascinating conversations with him. And one of the things he told me early on in um, my career working with him in medical school and before I chose residency options was he gave me two pieces of advice. Number one, get the best training you can. So go anywhere you need to go to get the best training you can. And then secondly, he said, always stay curious. And if you want to do research as part of your career, you need to make sure you're working in an environment as well as in a patient population where there are continuous questions, because that's the only way to sustain a research career. He himself had uh, uh, an illustrious research career um, as a neurologist and a multiple sclerosis investigator in Canada, uh, Dr. Jock Murray. He, he's absolutely key to my, my career. And then when I decided to change paths from ERCP to mostly GI bleeding and anticoagulants and antiplatelets. It was actually my mentor at McGill University, who was uh, also my now my dear friend, Alan Barkin, who's the co-author of this, of this CAG ACG guideline, who told me I should follow my passion. And if research and, and exploring GI outcomes in this population that hadn't really been a focus for anybody else was where my interest was. I should do that in, instead of focusing on ERCP. So that's what I did. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, we had uh, we had uh, Alan Barkin on the uh, podcast pretty recently. He's a, he's a firecracker. <laughs> he is. And, it, and it's funny because he always was. He became chair at the division at McGill University at the age of 40. I mean, he wasn't, he isn't that much older than me as he likes to remind me <laughs> constantly. Uh, he was just a boy wonder back then, and, and he continues to be just an incredible force in GI. For junior faculty out there who are, you know, looking at your, you know, multiple guidelines that you've put out, um, really being on top of your game I, what what would you i don't know what would you tell them like how do they get their foot in the door to like get on committees write guidelines get good quality research uh, i don't know how would you what would you tell them well you know i think it's really important that you identify an area that you want to excel at and you really need to contribute to the science in that area to be viewed as a content expert. Once you establish your, your reputation as a content expert, then folks start asking you to participate on these uh, committees to write guidelines. The first one I actually wrote was related to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. 
And I was asked by Francis Chan, who was convening that guideline panel, to serve as the methodologist. So Lauren Lane and I did the Delphi panel for this international consensus panel. That was the first guideline I participated in. But at that meeting, uh, I met so many terrific investigators who are uh, still good friends and colleagues to this day, mostly in the NSAGI bleeding world. And th those relationships just um, continued over the, over the last 20 years, and they've provided me with opportunities to work with them and learn how to do guidelines from some of the folks who do them really, really well. I also have had opportunities to work with the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and when you get a chance to do multidisciplinary guidelines with other societies where guidelines are big business, you know, they do them frequently and they do them well and there's a machine to them, you learn a lot about how you can do them quite effectively. So by the time I got to this most recent guideline, I had done seven others, and so I had... Uh, had an opportunity to learn from some of the best in, in the guideline-making field. Um, and we were able to handpick, Alan and I handpicked the people on this guideline panel because we wanted to have um, legitimate content experts <laughs> in GI bleeding and um, antiplatelets and anticoagulants as well as legitimate content experts in um, common GI procedures and techniques like uh, colorectal cancer screening and polypectomy. And we wanted real experts in grade methodology because it was really important to me as an epidemiologist that this guideline not be grade light or grade-ish or grade somewhat, but real grade. And so to do that, we made sure we worked with uh, Gregoris Leontiatis and Brian Sauer, and we did it right. I think the, uh, I think that's that's really that's really awesome. I mean, you can see that in the guidelines; they're they're super well written, and I think, um, you know, everyone kind of makes sense. I'm curious. So, I guess was the, um, I haven't seen a lot of guidelines that are both, you know, ACG and CAG, and like, was it just a, I mean, I guess given your upbringing, was it just a natural connection? Like, how did this actually come about? Did you guys? Well, I, I think it was. The convergence of a lot of great factors. Um, I already had a track record, record with the ACG of being a, a cross-disciplinary collaborative guideline writer with the American Heart and the American College of Cardiology. We put out those guidelines in 2008, 2009, and 2010. And so originally when the concept for redoing any thrombotic guideline came up was the hope was that we would again partner with the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, and do that as a multidisciplinary, multi-society guideline. But uh, when we went to them a few years ago from the ACG, wearing my ACG hat, they that was not a priority for them to redo this GI bleeding related work. Uh, but at the same time, um, there was interest from the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology to work with the ACG uh, because there was a recognition that the guidelines that were produced in either country were often being used by gastroenterologists in North America and to avoid duplication and to, to really leverage the skills that were on both sides of the border 
among people who were already friends, you know, because of connections where I grew up in GI and just continued work. I mean, Alan and Lauren and Grigoris have done now two uh, international guidelines for GI bleeding that I was honored to participate in. So this was a this was a core group of people who had already worked on other pro- projects together. We knew we would be successful. So uh, when the Practice Parameters Committee of the ACG contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this guideline with the Canadians? I said, yes, if I can pick my primary author from Canada and if he and I can pick the team. And they said, absolutely. And that's how it happened. Okay, so these guidelines are uh, there's a lot to them. There's there's uh, <laughs> there is a lot to unpack. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't want to waste any time. Uh, I do want to note, as most people probably know, that there there is an accompanying dissemination tool uh, that's super helpful for clinicians that kind of takes you step by step through, I think, different clinical scenarios, and I. Hopefully, with some cases, we'll be able to kind of incorporate the guidelines, a little bit of dissemination tool, and then, you know, ask you some how you how you do it, you know, for some. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like to tell people that the guideline and the dissemination tool go together like peanut butter and jelly. You really need to read both of them so that you have not only the evidence-based synopsis of each PICO question, which frames the content of our guideline, which you get from the actual guideline document, but the additional clinical context that you need to operationalize the guideline recommendations in day-to-day practice. And that comes from the dissemination tool. And our guideline was the first one that the CAG and ACG, well, actually ACG agreed to the dissemination tool. Uh, it does not appear in the Canadian Journal of Gastroenterology, mostly because they like a straight up grade by the book process. But I felt very strongly that for the American audience, uh, many of our members may not be as familiar with grade methodology as it is really a signature of the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology guideline process. Whereas here in the United States, I think people value more something pragmatic and practical that they can put in place. So I was concerned that we needed something to bridge the academics to the practice. And so um, Alan and I talked about this at length and we pitched the idea of a dissemination tool to uh, Millie Long and Jazz Bajajan, and they agreed that's a great idea. So we were the first guideline panel to create something like this, and we put it in the red journal, red section of the same issue so that um, clinicians could see how we operationalize or recommend operationalizing the guideline recommendations. Yeah, it is a it is a lovely companion piece. Okay, so now I think we should get to some of these cases. Okay, so uh, I'll start with case number one. Um, made a little changes here and there, but hopefully nothing major. So this is a fifty five year old white male. Uh, he's got a history of coronary artery disease, uh, status post PCI, with a stent in twenty sixteen. Uh, he also had a prior DVT in 2020. Um, he's currently just on uh, a DOAC. He's on Rivaroxaban. 
but he's coming in now for uh, hematemesis. His hemoglobin uh, on first check here was 8.5, which was down from 14 a month earlier with his PCP. And uh, he's he's in the ER. He's hypotensive. They actually just started him on pressors. And they, you know, you're, I guess, the, the consultant and, you know, the, the ER calls because they want to set up an upper endoscopy. Of course they do. <laughs> yeah. So I guess... Um, my first question, well, I mean, what, maybe if you have any initial thoughts about this patient, and then is this, would this be considered a severe life-threatening bleed? And, you know, how do we define that in patients? Yeah, yeah. And that's actually the most important triage point clinically is, is assessing the severity of the GI bleed. So in the guideline, as well as in the dissemination tool, we provide this definition of a life-threatening hemorrhage. And these are patients who are in hospital with hypotension, uh, often on pressors, or have uh, two conditions, one of two conditions that meet what I like to call the rule of fives. They've dropped their hemoglobin by greater than five grams per deciliter, or they've needed more than five units of blood to be transfused as part of the resuscitation. And these are patients who are at risk of death from their GI bleed. So these are these are severe GI bleeders, much different than your garden variety emergency room GI bleeder. And the reason why it's important to identify those patients as being life-threatening is because the decisions about whether or not you should even consider using a reversal agent for a DOAC or for warfarin, if this had been a warfarin bleed, um, all hinge on whether or not patients make that bar. And that's because when we looked at the evidence, the real benefit of using reversal agents was in patients with these life-threatening hemorrhages. Remember, all reversal agents for anticoagulants have a downside, which is a thromboembolic potential. And that was the nice thing about the guideline that we did. We framed it from a multidisciplinary perspective. We weren't just focused on the GI lens, but we also considered the cardiac lens and um, the embolism risk, as well as mortality. And to do that, we had the benefit of one of the world's foremost thrombosis experts, James Ducatis from McMaster University, as well as one of the world's foremost uh, heart rhythm specialists and um, authors in anticoagulant and antiplatelet literature, Peter Noseworthy from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He's a cardiologist. So that team, which was multidisciplinary, then we had four gastroenterologists on our team and two grade methodologists, looked at all these questions with that perspective. And that's how, when we looked at the literature that was uh, produced and, and, and into evidence to decision tables during the grade process, we always considered both sides of the coin. So without that life-threatening hemorrhage, you really shouldn't be considering a reversal agent for any anticoagulant. Our patient meets that qualification of a life-threatening hemorrhage. So let's say I was the, <laughs> I mean, I'll just go through a couple of things. You know, I am the concerned ER doc and I say, hey, uh, I'm on the fence about starting uh, FFP for this patient. You know, I really want to check an INR. What would you say to me? 
Well, first of all, the patient's on a DOAC, so an INR is irrelevant. Uh, if they're thinking about checking an INR, they're still in a warfarin paradigm. Uh, you cannot measure anticoagulant effect of a factor 10A inhibitor like rivaroxaban looking at an INR. So that's not going to be helpful. Fresh frozen plasma is also a very antiquated uh, paradigm for resuscitation. Even in the 2016 ASGE guideline that I helped co-author, we encourage people not to use fresh frozen plasma. Fresh frozen plasma was being used for warfarin GI bleed in the hope that it would correct an INR. That's irrelevant here and is actually irrelevant now for warfarin because there, there are better ways to correct uh, supertherapeutic INR, life-threatening hemorrhage. So you, this is a teachable moment for that emergency doc who was planning to do two things that are low yield for the patient. That's right. Um, so I guess maybe we should just get out of the way uh, IV vitamin K as well. Let's... Well, for DOAC, again, not helpful. And based on the 2022 guideline, we don't recommend it to you in the emergency setting or a warfarin either, mostly because it doesn't work fast enough. And we now know from GI bleeding data that the objective is get in there quickly and deal with whatever source of bleeding is occurring and achieve endoscopic hemostasis. And IV vitamin K, two to five milligrams, just doesn't do it. If you need to reverse warfarin quickly because the patient's having a life-threatening hemorrhage, you should use PCC, which has rapid and reliable correction of the INR. Uh, okay, so it sounds like FFP, uh, vitamin K are out, PCC is in. And it's in for definitely for warfarin. And it can be considered for any DOAC uh, life-threatening hemorrhage. It has uh, the same benefit or similar benefit for hemostasis as a other, other drug-specific reversal agents with a lower risk of thromboembolism. Plus, it's cheaper. Oh, okay. That's that duly noted. Um, now, what if they say to you, uh, you know, we, we, oh, I forgot to tell you the guy's platelets are, you know, 99,000. Um, I, I, you know, maybe he could benefit from a platelet transfusion. Yeah, yeah that's also uh, an antiquated model for GI bleed resuscitation. We now have really good data in the setting of GI bleed that the use of platelet transfusion increases the patient's risk of death by almost sixfold. And that same picture of increased mortality risk associated with platelet transfusion is seen in cardiac patients who have intracerebral hemorrhage bleeds 
as well as uh, bleeding after cabbage. And that's because platelets are a, a biodynamically active substance. They activate the cytokines and the inflammatory cascade. And so you really should playing fast and loose platelet transfusion. Now, you had mentioned that the patient's platelets were 99, and that's a trick question because we really don't know what the ideal threshold is where you should consider the risk of platelet transfusion. When you look at the literature and some of the other guidelines on GI bleeding around the world, the range is between 50 and 100. So because we didn't specifically do a grade PICO question on the threshold level for uh, ascertaining when you should transfuse platelets, we put it in the dissemination piece as consider if less than 100. But we say all over the dissemination tool as well as the guideline that you have to understand that cardiac patients who are having a GI bleed are at high risk. So you should be having multidisciplinary discussions because often your uh, management strategies can have a negative impact on the patient's cardioembolic status. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. I like it. Okay. So, uh, okay. The ER doc finally he gives in. Uh, you know, he, he does the standard stuff. Uh, but, you know, this, this patient has has a life-threatening hemorrhage. So if he's feeling the need to do more than airways, breathing, and circulation, you could consider the use of a reversal agent here. In this case, it would be a Dexinate Alpha or PCC. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So uh, let's say he gets PCC. Okay. Uh, he gets the patient to the ICU, um, stabilizes them a bit more, maybe gives them, you know, some fluids, maybe a unit of blood, erythromycin. Uh, so they get an endoscopy, uh, and they go in, they see this forest class 1B oozing lesion. It's clipped. Um, and now, you know, the, the team started to on a, you know, PPI drip the day after, and now they're asking you, you know, really two questions, which is one... You know, hey, this patient had a DVT, had stents in the past. When are we going to restart, you know, this uh, this rivaroxaban? And then two, uh, is this the best DOAC moving forward? Should we put them on something else? Well, that's a great question. And it, this is where it's really important to know your, your antithrombotic management as well as who is a high-risk cardiac patient because GI should be participating in this conversation because now this patient's had a GI bleed and we know from other data, including that published by my team, once you've had one GI bleed your risk on these drugs, your risk of bleeding goes up further uh, uh, for a second bleed. And six to 8% of patients actually die from that bleed within a year. So yeah, you need to be participating in these post-endoscopy conversations. So the first thing is, when should we restart the DOAC, right? Now, what we recommend 
now based on the GI pause data, which we has been presented at DDW and is now uh, in press with the Red Journal, as well as the original pause cohort study data. Patients DOAC should be restarted the day after the procedure if endoscopic hemostasis has been achieved, as it has been here. But the bigger question and the more important question is, is why is this patient on a DOAC in the first place? Right? So uh, this patient's DVT was in 2020. He doesn't have any arrhythmia required in any coagulant. Um, he has coronary artery disease, but his, his drug-eluting stents were put in in 2016. That's six years ago. So I would uh, be calling up a friendly neighborhood cardiologist and saying, does this patient have an underlying thrombophilia that predisposes <laughs> to, to clots? If, if not, why is this patient still on a DOAC? And maybe we should consider lowering this patient's risk of future GI bleed by stopping the DOAC and putting them on aspirin monotherapy because of his stents, an ACS event back in 2016. And of course, he should be on a PPI taken 30 to 60 minutes before he eats to give him gastroprotection for that chronic aspirin therapy. That's the power of cardio GI, Chuma. <laughs> and by doing that, you have actually altered that patient's whole mortality pathway. So it's huge when you can when you can use that inciting event of the GI bleed to change the trajectory of that patient's care. Because most of the time, patients are on antithrombotics because someone prescribed it and, no, and never bothered to tell the patient or the primary care doctor what period of time the patient really needed to be on that drug. Uh, okay, that is, that is great. I think uh, we, we ended up helping this patient. <laughs> I think we did. So, case number two. Okay, we have a 59-year-old male, uh, also has a history of coronary artery disease and familiar, familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, status post two stents in the past, uh, I will say in 2012, so they're pretty remote. Um, and he's also had, he had a TAVR, he had an aortic valve replacement uh, about three years ago. Currently on a Pixaban, was previously on Coumadin, but he didn't like coming in for all these frequent INR checks. So he's presenting to your clinic for a positive fit, and uh, he's, he's supposed to have a colonoscopy done, but he said he's receiving mixed messages about how long he has to hold his blood thinner. Um, so in the past, I guess the, the prior guidelines from ASGE you know, every for every single DOAC, it was per, you had to look at the DOAC and then look at the renal function and then maybe hold it for two days or maybe four days, depending on how damaged their kidneys were. Is Are we still doing that now or has, has it become simplified with these guidelines? Well, the good news is the management of DOACs has become a lot simpler, but... 
this patient, the case doesn't make sense in terms of the drugs he's on. Um, he, he, if he's had a TAVR and a history of coronary artery disease, I might expect him to be on dual antiplatelet therapy because patients post-TAVR need six weeks of dual antiplatelet therapy. And if they're on anything at all at this point, which is more than, well, three years ago was a TAVR, he might be on aspirin monotherapy. So if he's on apixaban and he had refused Coumadin in the past, it's not for the TAVR, it's not for the coronary artery disease, it's not for the hypercholesterolemia, it's not for the two stents. So you might have missed a history of atrial fibrillation on the history or something. I mean, it just didn't make sense. But let's assume he's on AFib just to make the case and the discussion about what to do with the apixaban uh, relevant. So you're quite right, Juma. In 2016, the guidance for temporary interruption of all DOACs was based on the original FDA trials that were conducted to get, to, to get approval of all these drugs. And at that time, uh, the knowledge was that all of these DOACs were excreted between 40 to 80% by the kidney based on which DOAC you're talking about. So impairment in the creatinine clearance of the patient would result in, in periods of higher residual anticoagulation, and that had to be factored in when you co contemplated temporary interruption of the DOAC before your procedure. So that's why we recommended in 2016 you look at the EGFR creatinine clearance, and if it was normal, great. You didn't you didn't need to extend the temporary interruption for more than two days. But if the patient had moderately impaired creatinine clearance, then you had to go to three days or more, uh, based on how severe the kidney function impairment was. With the pause study. That was published in 2019, which was a large international study of over 3,000 patients with atrial fibrillation on all the, the currently available DOACs who are undergoing surgical procedures, both big-time surgeries like Cabbage as well as dental surgeries and GI bleeds. Uh, all of these patients received a standardized algorithm of pre and post DOAC management. Patients with low risk procedures, which included all 586 GI procedures, were, were primarily EGDs and colonoscopies, with or without biopsy, with or without polypectomy, were considered low risk. They had their DOAC held the day before the procedure, on the day of the procedure, with resumption the day after. And with that algorithm, which is stripped down, easy, there was a 2.5% risk of post-procedural bleeding, 0.7% of thromboembolism, and 0.5% risk of mortality. 
so incredibly safe. Um, Jim Ducatus was the principal investigator on the PAUSE trial, and he was one of our authors, and he very generously gave us all the raw GI data because there just wasn't a lot of GI data to inform recommendations when we were doing our grade process. So Alan Barkin's team uh, worked with uh, myself as well as some of the original um, PAUSE investigators to analyze this data. And that's what's now in press with the Red Journal. And it essentially confirmed what the larger PAUSE cohort showed, which was the, that these standardized regimens were safe for patients. And so I guess maybe just an aside now. So I guess that's a, a really nice simplification for, I think, a lot of folks who were doing a lot of pre-charting. Yeah, GIs didn't really like looking at creatinine clearance. <laughs> Don't think they like, like nephrology. <laughs> so basically, if you're, if you're, if you have an indication for, you know, for a, a blood, for a DOAC, hold the drug the day before the procedure, the day of the procedure, and then restart it, assuming you have hemostasis the day after. Correct. And that's what you're going to be doing for most patients uh, who are undergoing GI procedures, both, especially in the elective setting. Now, if you are doing a procedure with a higher risk of post-procedural bleeding, you could hold the DOAC for three days in total, two days before the procedure, no DOAC on the day of the procedure for three days of total te temporary interruption with resumption the day after. Now, what we also talk about in the dissemination tool is that sometimes we're doing procedures in the elective setting that cause large mucosal disruptions. ESDs, EMRs, large field RFAs. Um, in that situation, there may be some reluctance to restart the DOAC the day after because you're not feeling confident that your hemostasis has been achieved. In those situations, we go back to guidance back from, from, uh, from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology Anticoagulation Consortium that I've also worked with as the GI representative. And because of the way these drugs are half, have short half-lives, and then once you restart, they get to an anticoagulant therapeutic level quickly, you could consider holding the anticoagulant for about 48 hours, 72 hours after these really high-risk GI procedures with high risk of post-procedural bleeding. Um, like I tell my colleague, Norio Fukami, who essentially does surgeries of the entire GI tract through a scope, you really don't want to hold it for more than 72 hours post because the patient has no residual anticoagulant effect and they'll be at high risk for a thromboembolic event. But for most of our procedures, hemostasis is achieved at the time of the procedure. You should restart the drug. So now, um, I and then I guess I want to jump to aspirin. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> maybe so. Presumably, yeah. I guess presume. Let's say because I guess it's different if if 
the aspirin, I guess, is in place for primary prevention versus secondary Absolutely. prevention. And what to do, yeah. So maybe maybe if you could touch on that. That, um, that whole area has really changed in the last six years since the last guideline has come out. Primary aspirin used for primary prevention is now not viewed favorably because it has very little cardiac benefit with well-recognized bleeding consequences. So uh, cardiology societies, including the American ones, are, are really backing away from aspirin as primary prevention. Where they need to make a dent is with primary care who are still doing that for a family history of heart disease, male gender, whatever. Aspirin prescribed for secondary prevention is an entirely different category. These are patients who have had heart attacks and strokes, and the aspirin is part of their prevention strategy. So when it comes to the management of aspirin prescribed for secondary prevention in the GI scope, endoscopy world, you need to know that it's important. Do not stop it. You can do absolutely everything <laughs> with cardiac aspirin on board. Now, what we don't know is the real safety in terms of post-procedural bleeding with some of these really big procedures that we're now doing in GI. So you might consider holding the aspirin for, you know, two days, three days before a procedure if you're doing a large, complex polyp removal, EMRs, ESDs, ERCPs with sphincterotomies, and a lot of stonework, EUS with FNA. But that is where we are coloring outside the line because we really don't have data to support that. Wherever we do color outside the line, we say in the dissemination tool, you have to talk to the cardiologist because they're going to have a better grasp on that patient's underlying risk of heart attack or stroke. You're not going to know if they have severe microvascular disease on their calf. You're not going to know if they have how strong their family history of heart disease is. You may not recognize that the patient's a terrible diabetic or has terrible lipids. I mean, these are all things that are going to affect the patient's underlying risk of cardiac sequelae. So before you're willy-nilly stopping aspirin, <laughs> talk to the cardiologist. Yeah, no, I think that is a uh, very sage advice. Um, now, uh, I, I do want to maybe talk a little bit about some of the antithrombotic agents. Um, are we, is it still kind of, I mean, like for, you know, Plavix, Ticagrelor, Prasacril, are we still kind of across the board just holding? For yeah, five that days? has not changed. That what has changed is the guidance for how long you should be holding these drugs. Um, Prasugril is the only one you should be holding for seven days. All the others, Ticagrelar and Plavix, you hold for five. So I see all kinds of things being done. Everything's held for five days. Everything's held for seven days. Um, at my institution, which makes me mental, the drop-down boxes hold for six days. It was almost like they decided to just cut the difference, and I'm constantly telling them, 
that's not the right thing to do. <laughs> so I think, I think that's going to get changed. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, five days for the two most commonly prescribed uh, P2Y12 inhibitors, Plavix and uh, Ticagrelor, and then uh, Prazogrel, which is Brylenta, is the only one you need to hold for seven days. You're continuing the cardiac aspirin. Now, there's a wrinkle in all of this because what has changed in the last six years is the cardiology perspective on dual antiplatelet therapy. Because so many studies have come out showing that patients may need shorter periods of dual antiplatelet therapy, right? Especially, you know, patient who's had ACS, a couple of drug eluting stents placed. It used to be it was a minimum of 12 months and maybe indefinite. But now there's been some studies to suggest that a, a minimum of six months and in some three months is all that is necessary. So you're saying, well, why does that matter to me as a gastroenterologist? Well, what, what I'm also seeing in practice as well as in the literature is that Cardiologists may choose to stop the dual antiplatelet therapy at six months, but they'll continue Plavix monotherapy indefinitely uh, because of other cardiac risk factors for bad adverse events. And the bottom line is when it comes to endoscopy, we have no literature to inform how we should best manage a monotherapy with a thenopyridine agent. So that's where you really need to have a discussion with the cardiologist saying, can I hold this, this uh, P2Y12, this Plavix manotherapy for uh, five days before I do this procedure? Um, or, and if not, uh, tell me why and, and let's think of some other alternatives. And when I do, when I have patients like this, and now I'm coloring really outside the line, I, I because we don't really have data to support this, but uh, but my experience has shown me it, it, it's the the better bad choice for the patient is um, I'll stop the Plavix monotherapy and start them on cardiac aspirin during the periprocedural period so that they have some antiplatelet coverage. And once, it, uh, uh, once endoscopic hemostasis is achieved, you put them back on their Plavix without a loading dose, get them off the aspirin. But again, like I said, this is not guideline concordant. This is, this is not literature concordant. This is experience concordant because, all, because of my experience with cardio GI. And I can tell you, it makes, uh, makes a worried cardiologist less tachycardic if they've got a patient on Plavix monotherapy to have that Plavix held and aspirin, cardiac aspirin dose is substituted through the GI period, procedural period, because we have data to show that you can do anything you want endoscopically on aspirin monotherapy at, at, at uh, 
81 milligrams per day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you just to make sure that that uh, 81 as opposed to 325. Yeah. We do have good data, both in the cardiac literature, uh, randomized controlled trial of 44,000 patients. I mean, the cardiologists do it right. Uh, and as well as GI literature of much smaller populations, 200 patients, et cetera, that um, aspirin prescribed at 325 milligrams per day as secondary prevention does not provide any additional benefit over 81 milligrams per day from a cardiac standpoint, but it certainly does increase the risk of GI bleeding anywhere between three to four-fold based on the study you look at. So even the cardiologists are saying, don't do that. It's usually the CV surgeon who's doing that after a cabbage, and it just it just becomes codified in the patient's EMR because nobody's questioned it. Yeah, I'm, 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 it sounds like you spend a great deal of your time de-prescribing or... <laughs> I, de- I spend a lot of time lo- doing medication reconciliation and then uh, crime scene investigation with patients' cardiac history. And then I do a lot of time talking. I spend a lot of time talking to cardiologists and neurologists and asking them why. And then if there's a good reason, saying, why aren't these patients on a PPI? Because that is going to give them the protection they need up to 60% from an upper GI blade. And then does it, for those patients who, um, let's say the ones who you're you know, you find out they need a, they have a good reason to be on aspirin or, you know, some antiplatelet threat. Does it, does it matter the dose of PPI for, for? Yeah, actually yeah. This, this is one of Lauren Lane's favorite topics. So if you want to get into the whole PPI and GI bleeding and cardiac patient, you should have them on your, on your podcast. Bottom line is we now have good RCT data that patients who are on chronic aspirin therapy, chronic dual antiplatelet therapy, and chronic anticoagulant therapy should be on daily PPI. Um, my preference is to, is to prescribe once daily. The pro tip I tell all my patients, is take the bottle, put it on your bedside table with a glass of water. When you wake up in the morning, take it on an empty stomach. By the time you shower and groom and sit down to breakfast, a minimum of 30 minutes is elapsed. Sometimes 60 minutes is elapsed, depending on how elaborate your grooming ritual is. (laughs) And then you eat. And that gives you the protection you need for from your chronic antithrombotic therapy. And remember as well, the other big ticket thing to remember in cardiac patients who are on chronic antithrombotic therapy is knowing whether or not they're HP positive or not. Because helicobacter pylori positive patients who are not eradicated have an increased risk of GI bleeding on chronic aspirin therapy, chronic dual antiplatelet therapy, and probably also anticoagulant therapy. That is an awesome tidbit. See that 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 is why we bring 
guests like Dr. Nina Abraham on the show because you can't even find that in the guidelines. Um, yeah, well, you know, that's the, the thing. You have to read it. You've probably read those studies as fellows because they've been big ticket studies in major GI journals. But if you're not swimming in that cardio GI lane, it's hard to put all these important evidence-based points together in a rational strategy for a cardiac patient. But I'm going to tell you a secret. The principles are quite straightforward. You just need to remember them. And you really can make a difference on that cardiac patient's morbidity and mortality. Um, so I, I think we are going to leave it there. Um, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. For our listeners who, you know, have been soaking up all this knowledge for like the last almost hour and are like, where can I get more of these cardio GI gems? Um, how, how do they, uh, I don't know, how do they follow your work? you know, follow you or, you know, do you have a website or, yeah. Well, I have a Twitter account <laughs> for as long as Twitter is going to exist. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on there. <laughs> if you listen to Austin Shank, <laughs> Twitter's about to explode. Uh, but for right now, you can follow me at, at Nina S. Abraham, MD. And I often will post pearls uh, under the hashtag cardio GI uh, that you could look at. Uh, but remember, guidelines are just the entry-level cardio GI. I'm hoping um, with time, the National GI Societies will be more interested in digging into more topics in cardio GI that will allow us to share and teach some of this knowledge more broadly. But right now, with the new guideline out, everybody's focused on making sure our, our gastroenterologists understand the paradigm shifts that have occurred. That is, thank you. Uh, I think our, our listeners will definitely appreciate it. Um, so I just want to thank our listeners. Um, I hope you appreciated the show and uh, we are signing off. Thanks so much, Shuma. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recorded conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.